TFS episode number 177. This is Greg Duncan. I'm Gordon Beaming. This is Josh Garverick. Wait, no, those uh, listeners, those are actually recordings of our hosts. They're not actually on. I just kind of dubbed them in virtually because, you know. <laughs> Luckily for you, I don't have my voice on loop. <laughs> Gentlemen, Josh and Gordon, hey, man, it's been a while. Uh, welcome welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. And th- our <laughs> listeners absolutely thank you guys for coming on because they are very tired of listening to me ramble on. So they can listen to somebody else ramble on and ramble on. So, uh, Gordon, how have yeah. you been, man? Yeah, I'm good. I've actually, when you when you said that, what actually just clicked in my head, we were saying before we started recording that the last show was on was in September. And I was like, Greg, that's only like four months ago. I just realized it's almost September again. <laughs> it, it has been way too long. It's like time has just flown past. So, uh, Gordon, I, I hopefully this is, yeah, an, good is not an embarrassing question. Did you get renewed for MVP, Gordon? Yeah, luckily. Did, I, don't, I don't know why. So you did get renewed. Yeah. Good. Congratulations. Gordon, how have you been? Yeah, good. Um, lot, lots of running, lots of doing all random stuff, uh, lots of small random apps that I've been making. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, overall, good, good, good. Good. Yourself, and- Greg? How have you been keeping? <laughs> you know, that was actually a brain fart. I was trying to say, Josh, I, I can't have all these different hosts on the show. You guys are making my brain explode. I was actually meant to say, Josh, <laughs> how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. Um, been real busy, busy to the point where I, I can't come on and, and shoot the breeze with the likes of you. So, um, just finished up a, a three month stint where I was going back and forth to Boston every week, uh, which was, was definitely a little rough on the, uh, the sleep and, and, uh, other things. So, um, kind of eased out of that and here I am. So doing well i was renewed as well as an mvp so i'm excited congratulations. about that yes thank you and congratulations to you greg and to you gordon as well yes yeah, all three of us made it that's crazy thought they're gonna have to put up with us for at least one more summit <laughs> <laughs> all right so why are we doing I a show it. go ahead no, no i was just gonna say i mean it's not it's not as much of a thing for you guys but flying from all the way on the other side of the world um I saw uh, Google Flats. You can basically subscribe to the pricing of flats. So I've got like all the different trips that I could take going through to Summit. And I've started tracking it now already. And like they send me a mail saying, okay, it's gone up by this much. It's gone down by this much. It's gone up by this much. I can start like watching the trends as it gets closer to Summit for booking flats and stuff. It's pretty cool. I didn't know it existed. And everyone else is like, oh, no, we've used that like forever. I'm like, what the hell, man? We've been out the loop. You know who should ask? We should. We need to get Paul and Mickey back on because they're like flying all <laughs> the time. Yeah. All I'm right. So sure they, go ahead. I was going to say I'm pretty sure they have stock in Boeing. <laughs> well, yeah, or at least one of the airlines. I don't know Boeing right now. Boeing's. Yeah. Matter of fact, when I went to the summit, my wife was asking me, "Are you going to be on a one of those 737s?" I was like, "No, I'll be on an Airbus." So. <laughs> all right. So why are we here today? To Today, we are bringing back a guest who was only here just last year, like 11 months ago, which is pretty rare that we bring on somebody that quickly. Um, Dave Harrison is a consultant at Microsoft Premier, specializing in DevOps and Agile. As a development lead and project manager, he's spearheaded cultural revolutions in several large retail and insurance organizations and made the leap to agile development and continuous delivery. 
He's an enthusiastic promoter of release management using tools such as Chef, Puppet, Ansible, and Docker. He believes very firmly that, as with agile development, the exact tool selected is less important than having the people and the processes in place and ready. He's a proud father of two beautiful girls, has been married to his lovely wife, Jennifer, for 24 years, is based out of Portland, Oregon, USA. He enjoys fishing, reading history books, and in his spare time, often wonders if he should be doing more around the house instead of goofing off. Mr. Harrison, Dave, welcome to the show. Welcome oh, back. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, it's nice to be back. So 24 years, huh? is, this, is that still accurate or is it that bio? Still accurate. We're coming up on our 21st, uh, 25th anniversary in November. So, uh, Are you going to do anything cool 25th-y or is it, you shouldn't say because it's a secret? It's a, yeah, we're going to go on a road trip to California. So it should be fun. Nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah we're, uh, my wife and I just celebrated our 27th. So. Oh, congratulations. That's great. <laughs> and, and seven so you're ahead yeah of me. <laughs> but i had a, i had an old old human moment can't say old guy because that's not inclusive but old human moment and and i was telling some of my co-workers and then they looked at me and i was like how old are you they're like 26 I'm like oh god i've been married longer than these guys have been freaking alive it? <laughs> it's like our doctors keep getting younger and younger and you know i'm starting to hang out at the skater park and my red rascal yelling at the punks <laughs> hey, damn so- kids <laughs> so, when did that happen? When so that... old. God. <laughs> See, I'd be hanging out at the skate park, critiquing their, critiquing yep. their, uh, their, you know, dumpins and their, uh, their ollies and all that stuff. Right. That's terrible. Yeah. I look at my hands. I'm getting like brown old man spots on my hands. Like, God damn, uh-huh. what the hell? That wasn't there like last yesterday. <laughs> It's a sad story. Yeah. So, Dave, the one of the reasons why we really wanted to have you on, well, you actually reached out to us and we said, okay, um, is your book. Last time you were writing your book, now you've written the book and it's been released. How is the book Achieving DevOps doing? It's doing really good. I'm getting a lot of really good feedback. And, um, yeah, I'm really happy with it. It was um, a labor of love, kind of like what you guys do. Um, with Radio, Radio TFS, um, but I, I enjoyed it. I mean, there's no better way of learning a topic than trying to write a book around it. Um, you're exposing yourself to a lot of ridicule if you don't know, do your research. And it was it was really fun. I, I definitely am glad I did it. So, so you're saying it's not you're not going to retire? I don't think yeah, I, I might be able to buy many many lattes with what I make off of the book. Yes. Well, hey. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's something. Again, it's I, I felt like this was something I really. This is a book I could have used ten years ago, back before mm-hmm. I knew DevOps was a thing. I implemented Agile, right, and that was a huge success. Mm-hmm. But oddly enough, it was a success just for the developers. Everyone else started to hate me more because <laughs> uh, I was pushing releases out more often. We just weren't ready, you know. So I feel like um, DevOps is definitely the missing piece. And related to this, you're doing a like sort of companion podcast. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we take uh, we interview a lot of the people. Um, I think probably with the, when I was about uh, three months into writing the book, um, Nicole Forsgren and Gene Kim they came out with uh, Accelerate, right? Mm-hmm. Which is such a great book, but it also took away my entire topic. <laughs> I mean, they really they did. So, I love that book, and I also hate them with the fire of a thousand suns because I had to start over, you know. And um, and so I realized, well, I'm going to have to really expand my comfort level. So I interviewed a lot of people from all over. And it's really it's their thoughts that really make the book, I think. 
like about what really works in practice versus what works in, in the you know in the book world. Nice. And I was listening to it, and I and I have to say, <laughs> no, listeners, we'll have a link in the show notes. Don't write this down. It's Anchor FM slash D A V E dash H A R R I S O N five. But again, we'll have links in the show notes. And I was listening to it, and I was like, wow. You know, you do like post-processing and you, your bumpers are like, you know, a little overview of what's going to talk about. And, you know, it, it's kind of like almost a real podcast. <laughs> it's almost a real podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, for instance, you know, I, I interviewed a, um, a gentleman I really like, a good friend of mine, John Swiak. And um, we sat down again and this was like a year later. Mm-hmm. And I cannot tell you, I mean, what a success story they're building out there at Humana. Um, because he's, he was telling me about now DevOps is just a thing that we do. I mean, we don't talk about it. I, I don't have to enforce it. It just, it's not a role or a responsibility. It's just, it's kind of like, I don't have to tell people come in with wearing pants. We understand we're going to show up wearing pants and people do testing and we, we think about security and it's just much easier. I love that story. And, and the, Humana as in the healthcare yeah. major corporation and they're, so they're doing DevOps. Absolutely. And I, I think the way that uh, the way that John went about it was really thoughtful. Instead of um, he says, we realized we could become a pain, a pain point, just another um, limiting factor if it, everything has to go through our architecture group, right? So instead, we sit down with these teams one at a time. We say, what are your goals? What hurts the most? And then we talk about what the cloud can do. And, and there's four pillars they look at. Um, and then they and they say, well, how can we help you reach your, your goal? So by engaging and showing empathy like that, they've gotten a lot farther. And these are now self-driven teams. They're not having to run off to mommy and daddy for help. And I think it's it's a, they've made so much progress in just a year. It's really quite astounding because they, they don't set themselves up as being the, the be-all, end-all of DevOps. Now, and did they have extra problems because of the, the field they're in, regulatory issues or anything like that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, for instance, they 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 talk about non-functional characteristics, and that goes way beyond you know logging and performance. It's hey, we have a lot of you know PII here, um, sensitive data. So, is this auditable? Is it traceable? Do we meet HIPAA compliance requirements? Um, that's very important to them, and it it kind of comes first, and it helps them it helps them kind of sell DevOps because without it. Uh, I mean, it all starts with a pipeline. Suddenly, everything becomes much more traceable. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's also like interesting. Like we said, I mean, that's a, f- a field that you would not normally think. Like, hey, DevOps. I mean, often like you hear guys saying, "Hey, banks, they can't do DevOps because they can't release, however often or whatever." And it's very like narrow-minded. But like, I think same key that you mentioned is they sit down with the teams and say, "Like, hey, what's what's your struggle points? Like, what's your pain points? How can we?" help you fix it. So the teams are involved. It's not like they just rock up and say, cool, this is how we're going to DevOps, um, which is often uh, what happens. Yeah. And so, I mean, by the way, Greg did a, can I give a shout out to you, Greg, your, your Azure DevOps podcast? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Smooth like butter, guys. <laughs> no, it, it was, he covered a lot of ground in that. And I, but I, one thing that really stuck out to me, Greg, that you were saying mm-hmm. was business value alone, it just doesn't move the needle. You have to prove to people, you know, what's in it for me? How will this make my life easier? Um, and that really resonated because I, I met with a good friend of mine a, a week or two ago, and, and he said, Dave, we're doing this big cloud transformation. All the executives are on board. They're always carping about moving to the cloud. He says, we are right now exactly where we were a year ago. And a year from now, we're going to be still stuck in neutral. How much better off we'd be 
if instead of trying to come up with this perfect cloud architecture, you know, a golden set of Im- images and this great framework that's bulletproof and perfect, how much better off we'd be if, if our, for instance, our architects would sit down every Thursday with one development team and say, okay, what hurts the most? How can I help? Yeah, that what hurts the most, I think, is is one of the key messages. And I hear it everywhere. Even Donovan said it back in January on it. Start mm-hmm. with what hurts the most. Yeah, and so, so many times um, we find it's something we weren't expecting. Um, mm-hmm. It's around we're really not sure if this feature is getting used or not. You know, or we're really when something happens in production, it takes us hours or days to track down exactly what happened. So usually we always kind of focus on the middle part of the garden hose when it comes to delivery pipelines. Like, oh, you know, let's sprinkle in some chef or let's let's think about Puppet or, or Terraform for provisioning. Right. And I love all those things. But what if the problem is lack of monitoring? What if the problem is we don't really build any any telemetry to say, is this feature actually getting used? Do people like it? You know, or we don't really know what exact, you know, a true minimum viable product. It's something you're embarrassed to show your mom. But are we comfortable with are we are we comfortable with experimenting, right? You know, that that can we learn and can we learn quickly when something is not going to to fly? So one of the things you bring up in this and we're totally going off the rails over everything we were supposed to talk about, but you know, that's, that's our show. <laughs> but that, um, but that every show, man. Yeah, it, it really does. Um, and I had a lot of coffee today, so I'm kind of revved up here. Uh there's a bullet point here on the Humana show about microservices. And I have a question for the room. Uh, you know, microservices were hot like what, two or three years ago. And now the pendulum is kind of swinging back because there was microservice sprawl and it was everywhere. And it was, they weren't truly microservices. There are dependencies between the services and all this good kind of stuff. Um, Josh, let's actually start with you. What do you think the state of microservices is? I think microservices are now macroservices. To be to be honest, I, I, I've seen a lot of that struggle with folks where they're they're trying to break their their services down into these minute units of work, and everyone's pulling their hair out because they can't figure out how to do it or you know where the contexts are and and what's appropriate for cross service communication, if anything. And a lot of times there's the the Netflix comparison or the Spotify comparison, and and it's like well. Yeah, they do that, but you don't have to do that. I mean, you do what makes the most sense to you and what retains the most amount of functionality without completely busting everything. So um, I, I can kind of see it drifting out of popularity and, and shifting more towards kind of pillars of, of uh, like domain-driven type of things. So looking at it from so, that perspective. So if you're saying you're a development team and you're not doing microservices, you don't suck? That's correct. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> Microservice envy is a real thing, though, right? I mean, a lot of people are, are still envious yeah. of that that architecture. Yeah, it's the FOMO for microservices. You know, the fear of missing out <laughs> that they're not doing the microservices. And like everything, you know, you've got to take every new and shiny with a grain of salt and, you know, see where it helps you and where the business value is on it, not just because it's the the shiniest thing on the block. Uh, Gordon, what do you think about microservices in the state of? Well, I think for me, the like when you talk to people about microservices, it's not what we used to refer to as microservices. I think we, we use the buzzword still quite a lot. Um, but I think it's similar to what um, Josh was saying. Um that is, I see people moving more towards wanting to do like almost single responsibility services. Yeah. Um, where 
it sort of it owns more like a data entity or a flow of something happening. And it's more just for ease of different teams getting in there. Um, because often what I'm seeing happening is like you'd get many different requirements coming through and guys aren't always using feature flags. So they're not always working like as best they could to um, limit the exposure of what they're working on. So what they end up doing then is having to merge a whole bunch of branches together and there's a whole bunch of different things in, in staging environments. And that problem sort of goes away for them when they say, okay, well, we have these different services that have a single responsibility because then those different requirements generally don't overlap as much um, and it helps them then work smoother. Um, but yeah, in a nutshell, pretty much what, what Josh said, just with um, my brain's gone flat. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's okay. It's like a million. O'clock. I just—it's just like blue screened it there. <laughs> well, it's like a million o'clock there where you're at, right? Yeah. So yeah. 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 Help, yeah. Help us now. So, Dave, what what are you thinking about microservices? And and that's that's really interesting because I tell you, um, I hear the gamut. I hear, oh, it's a fad. It's been exposed, um, which to me is very overstated. We we know, unlike SOA, there's. <laughs> We can point to winning examples of microservices, right? And then there's you have to use microservices everywhere, um, kind of the far end of the pendulum, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for everything. And how I like kind of the way Humana went about it. Um, they said, "Listen, we're just going to take the the pieces that we know need to scale, uh, like a user service, for example, identity management, or anything that's, that's prevent, preventing us from." With the insurance industry, it's all about peak periods. Everyone tries to sign up mm-hmm. like five minutes before the deadline. Right. So in order to handle those peak periods, what in this application, this big monolith needs to scale? Okay, can we split that off and make turn it into a microservice? That works for them. Um, I used to think microservices were only applicable for, you know, the Amazons of the world with a, a billion developers and money to burn. Um, but uh, I've talked to some smaller consulting companies and they've said, Dave, we use them all the time and we have a development staff of 20 and without them, we couldn't scale. Um, it, it delivers on reusability. So um, I, I think I think being pragmatic about it and, and not expecting it to solve everything, it's not a silver bullet. Um, but I do feel like, especially for Greenfield applications, um, it's a winner. I mean, it, it definitely has a lot of potential to cut down on um, some of the reusability problems we have around software. Josh, you're in the same industry, right? Insurance? No, I'm actually, now I'm in consulting, so I'm, okay. I'm doing a little bit of, of everything. So uh, mainly working with uh, re- retail-based clients at the moment. Oh, well, I screwed that up, didn't I? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Try to segue into that. didn't change so much, but. Yeah, they didn't work. Yeah. Okay. I think saying saying important that you're saying like they're breaking off the pieces that and and you could in a way say it's the stuff that's going to hurt the most. Like they know that potentially the identity service is not going to scale, so they're breaking that off. And a microservice um, works for that. But I think where where the or at least for me where the microservices is falling on its face kind of thing comes in is where guys start at the start of the project. They say, "Cool, this project's going to be a microservice." And they spend like months developing in all these different like mm-hmm. solutions and these different projects, and they're not actually making any ground on the product that they want. Like they're not they're not getting anywhere near an MVP, and they've been working on it for like months already. Um, I think in that way, microservices for me are falling over. But like like you're saying, extracting like the identity service or, or extracting a some other. Um, module out of an app because that needs to scale independently. I think that's that's quite common. 
Yeah, and, and I've, I've heard a lot of people say, listen, um, if you start with a monolith, is that a bad thing? You don't really know your domain yet, so how can you split this up into logical partitions? Um, yeah. Maybe starting with a monolith where, hey, it's a lot easier for us to build in transactions. It's a lot easier for us to you know, know what's going on. We don't have to worry about discrete data stores. That's usually the big stumbling block. Our performance is usually a lot better. I mean, distributed computing should be a last resort. Um, and yet we oftentimes go there first. Um, it comes with a lot of hassles around governance and performance that a lot of companies just aren't ready for. So um, sometimes a lot of companies start with a monolith and then they, they kind of gradually partition out. And there's nothing wrong with that. It may be yeah. the, the shortest distance between two points. There's nothing wrong with being pragmatic on your choices. I love your use of that word because that is like the key. It's being pragmatic about it and not just following the dogma. Well, and one of the one, I think one of the biggest benefits um, with designing these services, they do one thing and do it well, is that you can choose your language of choice. And for a lot of employees, employers, they're having difficulty finding a thousand .NET developers, you know, in the city of Portland, Oregon, right? But if you can split it up and and make these very small, you can um, because the functionality is so limited, you can actually add people to a project and have it end quicker which is unheard of. And secondly, you can have people pick the language that's best for the job and, and it, it kind of widens your net as far as people. And that's a huge uh, advantage that, that not a lot of people know about is we can resource easier. Uh, Dave, as a .NET engineer myself, I'm going to have to delete that whole part. Right. <laughs> yeah. There's only one language and it's .NET, damn it. <laughs> Gordon, you were going to say? No, no, I was... Uh, uh, just agreeing with that and also agreeing with the deleting of that section out of the recording. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get on the rails here a, a second. Now this, uh, Dave, you and I are both laughing at this comic and I'll, I'm, I'm going to totally butcher this comic for everybody, but and we'll have the link in the show notes. So a DevOps engineer walks into a bar, this guy says to a woman standing next to him and she says, you mean an infrastructure engineer? The guy goes, huh? She replies, DevOps is a cultural sensibility. It's a unified metrics-based approach to making software efficient and fearlessly using as much automation as possible. Sadly, many companies do not know how to have the will or the desire to foster a true DevOps culture. So they come up with the term DevOps engineer to make it seem as if DevOps sensibility has taken hold. In reality, they're just looking for infrastructure engineers who know how to work on AWS, Google, or Azure. Guy looks at her. Buzzkill. Buzzkill. <laughs> Let me buy you a beer. Like, okay. <laughs> I love yeah. that so much. So many companies say, we'll, 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 we'll create a team we'll call the DevOps team, and then everyone else is going to ride the bench, and now we're doing DevOps, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that's why in the one ads, I see DevOps. Now, uh, Gordon, are you, what's your job title? Um, I don't know. I just do shit. I mean, I do stuff because this is going to be the head of the car. <laughs> Gordon Beaming does stuff. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think on LinkedIn, I updated my job description as software guy because I just do software things. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, so the DevOps engineer is an interesting thing because like I've chatted to I mean, there was a, a guy where I, where I used to work. I always used to uh, rag him for it because, I mean, his team was the DevOps team. and what I eventually, like after lots of times of ragging with him and we back and forth jokes, what I realized is that team is basically for for the company was effectively their in-house consultants. So the same way as you would bring a DevOps consultant in, or I think the term now practitioner, um, 
that team was basically that for the company, but because everyone needs a title and consultant for internal seems a bit weird. They sort of get stamped with the engineer, um, like DevOps engineer is their title. But yeah, the, um, oh man, I was going somewhere with this. My brain is so weird today. Damn. I'll, I'll get you. You have to undo that yeah. last update. Yeah, I think the, the, it's all these, um, I must get off the insider track. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, oh, what's yes. your title? That's, sorry, oh, that's what ahead. I was going to say. With, with this thing, um, I think it was last summer to the summit before. And um, we're talking about uh, I don't know, the group of us who are talking about DevOps culture. Um, so then I made an extension for Azure DevOps, uh, which was DevOps culture. So I said you can't you can't buy it, but you can install it. Um, so that so then you got a tab on your <laughs> a, a top level tab that said uh, DevOps or DevOps culture, and then when you clicked on that, then it had the snippet from uh, Donovan Brown's blog, and then a link to go and read fully about DevOps culture on his blog. Nice, Josh. What's yeah, your I- title? Mm. Sorry, Dave. Well, officially it's cloud solution architect, um, oh, okay. but I do all kinds of different stuff. I mean, a lot of a lot of the stuff that I'm involved in is also considered be- somewhere between site reliability engineering and application modernization stuff. So, okay, I'm going to jump ahead and, and steal one of your questions, Josh, because this was relatively new to me. I, you know, being honest here, the SRE, the site reliability engineering movement was actually, I have not been, at least I've not keyed on it, so I've not been seeing it a lot. Uh, Dave, tell me about SRE. What What is it and why is it good? So it kind of solves one of the initial problems I had with DevOps coming in, and that is it's so wishy-washy and kind of granola-y, you know. Um, it's like, oh, it's, it's, um, it's not prescriptive enough at times. DevOps. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we know if we're actually making progress? So um, I interviewed a couple people in the book, uh, a few of whom wrote the, like the SRE handbook and um, uh, from O'Reilly. It's a very successful book. And it makes it all about, uh, we're going to focus on an error budget. So Mr. Stakeholder, you have your expectations of availability, right? You, you want five nines. Okay, that means we're going to slow to a crawl. No, I don't want that. I want us to be able to move ahead with these new features. Okay, so that involves risk. So every change involves risk, but I guarantee in most companies, the stakeholder's expectation of availability is different, very different from that the, what the engineers have or the operations team has. So it kind of gets it out on the table and says, look, we've already had a three-hour outage last month, so we're done for the next couple months unless we choose to kind of adjust that error budget. And the other secret... Kind of the secret sauce of the SRE movement is um, is the blameless postmortem, which is I'm a huge fan of that. It's it's um, and the SRE culture it's embedded. And it, I think it came a little bit from the Etsy um, and John Allspaugh, but I think it says a lot about us how we react when kind of the the crap hits the fan. Um, it does it. You know, high performing teams you see them kind of laughing and joking with each other, and when there's a problem they all pitch in. Low performing teams they're blaming the other guys. You know, or or they don't have a postmortem at all. We never learn from failure. So I love the SRE movement because it's very prescriptive. Everyone knows their roles and responsibilities. Uh, we've started adopting it now at Microsoft, and this was an innovation. That I think it began about 2002 in Google, mm-hmm. and we've learned um, availability and reliability. Um, it's very hard to make a system reliable once it hits that unreliable state. So if we can if we can focus on quality and keep it foremost. 
everyone will get it kind of um, it's almost like a, a marriage counselor type arrangement between the people who are in charge of running the software and the people who are writing, uh, creating change that could threaten availability. I think it's great. So uh, not to you know, Atlassian had an interesting post on it and, and that I like it. And it's kind of what sparked my interest in it. SR, their second paragraph, SRE effectively ends the age old battles between development and operations and encourages product reliability, accountability and innovation minus the hallway drama we've come to expect in what we feel like software development in high school. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, so in, in a, a good SRE is like, he's not just a break saying, you can't release, you can't release. He's also saying, guys, we're being too conservative. Can we go faster? So it's a break and an accelerator. And I love it because a lot of the damage we do in relationships comes down to implicit, unspoken assumptions. So it kind of gets our cards on the table, um, and it, it, it forces us to think about our customer first and foremost. I, I really enjoy it um, because it is so it's, – it's a very good implementation of the DevOps philosophy. Nice. Um, Josh, you I mentioned – I missed the hallway drama. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, did you mention SRE? I did. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of stuff that, that – my company does both from that perspective, app modernization and other things, uh, focus mainly on, on Azure stuff, obviously. So um, we, we work with folks to, you know, make those risk assessments and, and help them understand how to integrate that into their, their overall mindset when they're, when they're looking at solving problems. And obviously there's some, there's tooling that goes along with some of that too. And, you know, a, a common problem that I've seen at least is that people tend to get excited about tools and then throw a bunch of tools at a problem, and at the, end, at the end of the day, you're just working with a bunch of tools. And you can interpret that however you'd like to, but... <laughs> <laughs> so, Josh, were there any other questions? We, we have a lineup of things we wanted to ask Dave. We're kind of running out of time here soon. Um, so, so I, I just want to ask Dave, with no. those, like, with the reflections, well, you can't say no. I'm like, I'm, I'm yeah, so less frequent that I'm almost like a guest as well. <laughs> <laughs> um with with those like some when when you the guys are reflecting on the problems um so there's i mean there's the one way that we see like you said where they, like everyone's basically just blaming each other but then you also get like some teams where everyone sort of doesn't want to blame the other guy because they they don't want to i don't know how to say it's like they don't want the other guy to get in trouble if that's the, the probably the easiest way i could say it how do you how do they you get the, those kind of teams to open up and understand that the feedback is constructive and it's going to help the team grow? That is such a that's such a great question um, because <laughs> because it, that's kind of a dysfunction too is lack of accountability, right? I don't want to blame the other guy because you know this is my buddy Frank and I don't want to get him in trouble. I have to work with this guy or. I depend on him. Yeah. Um, in a blameless postmortem, you actually spend half the time reconstructing a timeline. Mm -hmm. And that seems weird to me. Like, okay, at 5.05, we replied to this patch. At 5.15, we realized there was a problem. We started doing a rollback. The rollback failed because of the data layer, you know, blah, blah, blah. It gets very tedious, right? But yeah. they're very specific about that because it's amazing how many times we didn't, we didn't have enough data available to make the right decision. So instead of blaming the, the poor, stupid guy that just pushed the release button, maybe the problem is guardrails. Maybe the problem is we have smart people with a bad process. We need to provide better monitoring. Usually with Google, for example, when they come out with fixes, 
and there's always a fix for most of their their postmortems. It comes down to monitoring and dashboarding and just making sure as much information is available as possible the next time this comes up. Yeah. So it's not about blaming the other guy. Um, hopefully you are the engineer who caused the outage is usually on the spot to provide like a, a suggested resolution. But you're not allowed to say would have or should have. You're not allowed to put anyone on the red X because the, the problem we, usually comes down to not the people, but the processes or lack of process and automation that people have to work with. Um, yeah. Complex systems are inherently unsafe. Outages are going to happen. Pretending otherwise, we might as well be rubbing people's noses like a, a bad puppy in their accident. Yeah. And I guarantee you, if we start doing that as executives, we start, quote unquote, holding people accountable, you're going to get less information. And that problem is going to simmer in the background and just get worse yeah. and worse because of lack of transparency. Awesome. Thanks. I find I find the blameless postmortem interesting because um, we were at a conference recently and we asked people to hold up, uh, you know, their hands. Who out you? Who out there does like a postmortem of any, a process of any of any sort? And out of that hundred people in the the room, I think we had three people raise their hand. That means we're not learning from mistakes. It's it's a yeah. real problem. I think it's it's like a litmus test for an organization. When accidents happen, do we learn from them or do we try to pretend like they never happened? Or blame the other guy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm thinking about some organizations that I've known with, and, and they have a root cause analysis process, and they dig down, and everybody gets involved in this, and they, 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 they all dread it every single time. They have to do an RCA on it. Right. And, you know, I don't know how many I've actually seen. I've heard about them a lot. Oh, we have to do an RCA on this. Mm -hmm. And that's the last time you hear about it. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, the successful companies, they're not just having a, like an RCA or a cab meeting to a gauntlet where we beat mm -hmm. the crap out of people, right? Uh, for, <laughs> how dare you? Um, the, the good ones, they, they take that information, they add it into a database that's searchable by first responders, and uh, they use game days using that scenario. These are like tabletop. Dungeons and Dragons type exercises, right? So they, it, they make it a living thing. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I think it's so indicative of, you know, remember that in Accelerate, they talk about um, the Westrom study and the, the three types of organizations, pathological, bureaucratic, and then there's generative. And it all comes down to how we handle mistakes and outliers. Josh, did you have any questions you want to ask, Dave? As a matter of fact, I do. So... Earlier, we, we touched on this a little bit about business value alone not moving the needle. Um, needing to prove to people why adopting DevOps practices will make their life easier in some way. Uh, what are some good manifestations of, of that that you've seen, Dave, from either real-life experiences or through uh, hearing from other folks? That's a really good question. Um, I think we're kind of circling back to why I wrote this book in a way. A lot of the books that I see, like from ten years ago, and I love continuous delivery and and you know a lot of the books, but they always talk about business value and driving business value. And frankly, um, your average engineer and uh, I, I just don't care. <laughs> I don't care about the bot. This is this is targeting an executive, right? Because mm -hmm. their stock options really depend on on this. Now, I want my work to count when I'm at work, but like as far as like motivating me, um, I don't care about like business value, like this is an altar I should, you know, pray at. What I care about is making work suck less. That's literally why they wrote continuous delivery. 
was uh, we just want to walk in and, and hand this book to, to our engineers and operators. And if we do this, work will suck less. And we're going to enjoy our time here and we can go home to our families and not get woken up at two in the morning. That's a goal I can get behind. Um, not business value, but protecting my team, building quality in the work that I do, craftsmanship. These are all things that we care about is, is doing a good job while we are there. And then we get to go home to our families and leave work behind. I think that's like the big payoff for DevOps. Hope I don't know. I'm not sure if I answered that question properly or not. Oh, I think you did. <laughs> <laughs> the, the teams, the teams. I, I'll tell you this much: like I see um, companies all the time trying to boil the ocean. And Greg, you talked about this in that in your podcast. Mm-hmm. It's like we have to start with a. Every fire starts with a single spark. So you look for that one team and that one workflow. Can we turn this into a success? And you kind of you have to build on success like that. So um, I talk in the book a lot about habits. Um, Gordon, you just did a triathlon, and you started out with like this, you know, this very strict diet, and you lost a lot of weight, and then you were able to to start running, lost a, 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 some more weight, and then that started to get too boring, just running by itself. So then you started throwing in your, you know, more training for like a, a triathlon, and that's there was a very there's a great book called um, uh, let's see it's called. The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. And it doesn't mention DevOps at all. But that book had a huge impact on me. Um, about two years ago, I found out I came, came down with diabetes. And it was, it was like a turning point for me. And for about a year, I put my head in the sand. And I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to kind of take these pills. And I'm just trying to do the best I can. And my, you could see it in, in my health. I, I started getting worse and worse. So about six months ago, I joined a gym. And it, it, was, it did three things that were kind of different. Um, first off, instead of saying, I'm going to try to lose 20 pounds, my goal was just to go to the gym three times a week. And I said, I'm going to give this a year, and I'll see if this habit, instead of thinking about an outcome, if this habit kind of adds up to something. And then over time, instead of setting, instead of setting myself up for failure with like this massive change where I'm going to do the diet and this and all this at once, right? Instead, we're doing tiny incremental improvements. So maybe a month in, I'm going four times a week. And then three months in, I'm going five times a week. But you gradually kind of improve that little habit. And then you're showing your work where you are um, on a whiteboard in front of everyone. You're showing, here's how long it it took for me to to do this exercise. And over time, you can see gradually this, this huge improvement. Um, I've talked to several people, and their DevOps transformation looked exactly like that. It wasn't this great, big, huge shift to the cloud. It was tiny little improvements based on habits. And over time, incrementally, it has this huge power. That's awesome. Uh, Gordon, any uh, last bits? Sorry, my, my brain just got scrambled. My machine just rebooted. So no, nothing, nothing more for me. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? <laughs> uh, so Josh, Greg, sorry, oh, Greg, you, you mentioned feature flags mm-hmm. in, in your podcast. What what's your guys' thoughts on that? So, Josh, I'll let you go first. Okay, I personally am really for feature flags. I, I like the flexibility that it gives you and the safety net, so to speak, that it gives you for being able to release often without breaking existing functionality. I think that from what I've seen from implementations of feature flags, uh, people can get a little mired in the technical aspects of how the feature flag software works <laughs> or the, the library utility that you're using to do it works. 
versus what they're actually trying to do, which is gate off uh, potentially breaking functionality as they, they continue to continuously release. So I personally think it's a great concept. I think it's it's great that there are products out there like you know, LaunchDarkly that are, are well-rooted and have a, a pretty robust system for, for being able to do things like that. Gordon, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I also like I love feature the idea of feature flags and, and using them. Um, I think the like the, the team themselves that needs to be mature and I think plan stuff better. I don't. There's a there's a lot of teams that don't think plan things as well as they should um, when they go into it. And if you unfortunately if you have a team like that, then saying well let's use feature flags is basically just giving like a loaded gun to a child. Um, like so many <laughs> so many things can go wrong if you do that. As with any power, yeah. with any great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm. I still love the idea behind feature flags. I still, for whatever reason, am not telling the story right in my day job because we're still not doing them. And and even today, we, we are talking about we're doing us. We did a sprint planning, and they want to remove a feature. So, and the developer pretty smartly says, "Well, you know what? I'm going to remove the user interface, the underlying." stuff we're going to leave there because we have a tendency to have stuff come back. You know, it's like, oh, why is this feature gone? So then we uncommented out, you know, and immediately I'm saying, well, you know, if we had a feature flag around that. (laughs) (laughs) A toggle. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they all looked at me like I'm, oh, yeah, Greg, okay, Mr. Feature Flag Man. But um, (laughs) the other thing, too, is feature flags can also work as a pseudo level of telemetry. You can find out where people are going by what flags they are hitting and if they are no longer hitting these flags. And a tool like LaunchDarkly, you know, that, that's basically built into, whereas the new Microsoft one, uh, I'm, I'm glad the ASP.NET, uh, ASP.NET Core team is, is looking at feature flag support in the box or sort of in the box, in the NuGet box. But, I mean, LaunchDarkly has, and I'm not, selling them or anything else, but they've been around for so long. They have such a rich uh, offering and, you know, it's to implement it is really simple. And just the fact that you can then see how the people are using it. When you turn on the flag, what part are they going on to it? And that helps you keep out of a feature flag sprawl. That's the other thing you got to be worried about. Oh, we're going to wrap everything around the feature flag. And then, you know, a year from now, you've got 500 million feature flags. How do you go about knowing which ones you should even nuke? Well, a monitor tool like LaunchDarkly helps with that. So uh, I'm not sure where I was going with that. But, uh, yeah, you, you, yeah, yeah, you know, and, and you got it's, it's it's like why I sold it today was that, you know, how to help that developer and how to deal with those organizational changes or organizational challenges, whereas, you know, they want a feature gone and then all of a sudden they want it back. And, you know, if you wrap it around this way, you can do it without making any code changes. That's that's really interesting. I, I a couple months ago, I had a friend bring me in on a, a conference call. And uh, the developers were just almost in tears because they were just stuck ground to a halt because they were waiting on a stakeholder to provide sign-off. And the stakeholder was a very busy VP. He was traveling all over the place. So their features were just sitting there gathering dust in, in a closet for months and months. And when you talk to the VP, he said, listen, Dave, um, I would love to release early and often like my engineers keep telling me to do, but we've been burned so often and our rollbacks are so painful. Um, I had to take over gating our, our release cadence. 
So I think one of the you mentioned how it's, it's almost a form of telemetry. We can do uh, like release rings, for example, and mm-hmm. and release just to like a certain select group of customers, kind of test in production. That's all great. And the other thing we can do is we by decoupling a release from turning on and off functionality, you can actually hand the controls over if the dashboard is good enough to your business stakeholder, and they can decide. Okay, I think now is a good time for us to release this feature. And your engineers are freed up to kind of continue moving, knowing that everything's kind of nicely wrapped up. I absolutely agree with what I think Gordon said a little earlier, that if the team doesn't have discipline, feature (laughs) flags become another form of technical debt. It just starts littering up your code. So whatever tool you go with for feature flags, make sure you can view them and kill them quickly and easily. Absolutely. All right. We have to start wrapping up here. Dave, is there anything that we should have asked you, but we didn't? No, you guys really, um, I'm wrung out like a dish towel here, but I, <laughs> I got to tell you, I really love your guys' podcast. I always learn good things and I know it's a, a labor of love for you. I, I appreciate all the work you're doing in the community. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you, Dave. I really appreciate that. Um, Josh and Gordon, thank you both for coming on today. Again, appreciate you guys making time in your day to join us. Yeah. Thanks, thanks, Greg, for keeping the, the podcast actually going. Otherwise, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah well, just, just collecting dust on the shelf. Yeah, as all our regular listeners know, our cadence is kind of, yeah, not quite a cadence anymore. We're working on this big waterfall feature, so it's just coming. <laughs> yeah, well, not just you know, inside baseball, but I've still got a, a podcast that I recorded at Build that I have not yet released. So it was on, recorded on May 6th, and I still haven't released it from uh, Stephen Mermansky. So, and, uh, yeah, I'll get that out real soon now. <laughs> okay. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Radio TFS. You let us know um, how we're doing. Are we doing good? Are we doing bad? Uh, is there something you'd like to hear, something you don't want to hear? You want the hosts on more often, not so on? so often uh email us radio tfs at outlook.com we're on twitter as well at radio tfs on facebook slash radio tfs and the voicemail number if you make it safe for work we will edit it in and you can be a pseudo guest host don't write this down just go to the show notes or the podcast description it's one four two five two three three eight three seven nine uh dave josh gordon again thank you guys for coming on i really appreciate it all right guys thanks so much yeah, thank you. <laughs> I totally screwed that up. All right. Alexis <laughs> Ullman, thank you for listening to Radio TFS. <laughs>